If you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. <clears throat> Verse 60. It says, Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying, who can hear it? And then verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. My dear congregation, in in one moment here, uh, something sorrowful and something revealing happens at this moment. As Jesus asks his disciples if they too would leave him, something sorrowful has occurred. One of them cries out, Lord, to whom shall we go? But people were leaving. And that is sorrowful. I don't think for a moment that when all of these disciples who had to this point been following the Lord... I don't think the Lord just simply thought, well, that's just the way it is. It's been predetermined from before the world began that they're going to leave, and so I'm just now going to turn to my disciples. No, this is, this is the Lord we're talking about. Here is one who cared deeply for others. And there is, at the height of his ministry, a huge exodus of people. And don't think for a moment that the Lord, in that sense, didn't feel that abandonment. And that the question that he asks to his disciples had this genuine uh, emphasis to it, asking them, will they also go away? This question also reveals a hidden truth. There is something sorrowful, but there's something very revealing. The congregation, think of this for a moment. The one who spoke as never a man spake. The one whom, when he would preach, the common people heard him gladly. Who performed miracles of of unparalleled power and preached purely, truly, and lived exactly what he preached. He could not keep all his followers. If you ever think for a single moment that you, if you only would have sat under this ministry or that ministry, maybe things would be much different in your life, isn't true. Here, the best preacher that has ever lived couldn't keep his followers deserting him during the age of miracles and casting out devils and raising the dead and walking on water and feeding 5,000. Many chose to turn away from him at the height, arguably, of his holy, blameless, and Sinless ministry. Some went back to Judaism, some to the world, and some we fear to their vices. 
So this tragedy must be remembered. It shows the the weakness and the dullness of the human nature. And it also shows us the power of this world and of the temptations that are in it. Jesus says in Luke 23, if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? If they were there and they saw and touched and handled and tasted as it were the bread of life, what can be expected in our day when there is no sight of Christ as they had it? If people forsook Christ, then we have no right to be surprised if he is forsaken also in these last days. And so let us look at this sad and happy ending of our chapter on bread as we bring this communion season to a close. Our theme is walking forward to Calvary, part 14, and we'll have three thoughts. First, we'll look at the abandonment. Secondly, the question of the Lord to the disciples. And then lastly, the reply. Walking forward to Calvary, part 14, the abandonment, the question, the reply. First, the abandonment. It's a story uh, old as time. Uh, People rejecting the truth that they don't want to hear. We say, well, we live exactly in that day as we look at the the media around us and the, um, and the, the government in their regulation of speech and information, especially our neighbors to the north where that regulation is, is coming down quite uh, heavily upon censorship and what is viewed online as news. And we think, oh, people only want to hear what they think the truth is. That's not a media problem. That's not a government problem. That's a human problem. We only want to hear what makes us feel comfortable. It's happening in our own minds, in our own hearts. It happened with the rich young ruler, you remember? When he came to the Lord and said, what must I do? What yet do I need to do that I might have eternal life? And he left Jesus in grief after hearing him speak of the cost. Here in our text, some of them had been blinded by their expectations of worldly gain, whatever that meant. They looked at him as a vending machine for their gain, for their profit. They left. Some saw uh, no value added because of the cost to, to benefit ratio, to follow him, to follow this man in, in everything that he is doing and saying. It doesn't seem to pay very many dividends when I look at the rest of the society. Surely that's what some were saying. Others couldn't get past the idea of of somehow the kingdom of God, somehow of salvation being connected to eating Jesus' flesh and blood. And so they were offended just on the very most basic level of offense. But ultimately, ultimately all of these were just like Esau, living for the present, living for now and turning away from God. 
And it's sad to think that even after all this time, people still refuse to accept the truth that is in Christ Jesus. But unsurprisingly, there are always people who turn away from Christ. Maybe tonight you are one of those people who are thinking about turning the other way. Never maybe spoken it out loud. Maybe you've never really put any legs to your feelings, but that's how you feel. It's a deadly combination. The the deceitful heart and the devil always looking for someone to devour. It's a deadly combination. And the world is full of temptations and the path to eternal life is so narrow. It's no wonder that so many people of every age, of every time period, go back, go away. It's a sad reality that we all must face, but but we must not forget then at the same time the millions who are sealed by baptism and, and remain faithful to Christ. And that that number is growing every day, fulfilling the number of the elect that God had chosen. That we need to keep our eyes on the prize and remember that despite the difficulties, that the cross is worth bearing. And that Christ will lose none of His, as we have read in this chapter today. In our day, it is a strong pull to turn away from from Christ. In every generation, there has been that pull, but I would say that it is greatly intensified because of society today. Because society as a whole has left any moorings attached to the Word of God. The objections to vital Christianity have never been so many and so convincing and so deceptive, in my opinion. There's always been alternatives, but they've never been a click away. The flood of information that comes because of the resources that we have available to us is overwhelming. We live in an age of free thought and scientific inquiry and the, and the pursuit of pleasure. We idolize intellect. We admire cleverness. And we're always looking, we're constantly looking for something new and different. Skepticism is rampant in our nation, with some claiming that that man is little better than an an ape, or, or at worst, a character in a higher being simulation game, if you can believe that. People are quick to accept arguments for unbelief, but are unwilling to examine the evidence for divine revelation. 
In today's world, we often hear the phrase, you know, no bigotry, no uh, party spirit, as a way to promote acceptance and as a way to promote understanding. However, this phrase has become a way to obscure true opinions and beliefs. And as a result, many people are departing from Christ and His teaching at an, an alarming rate in the United States. It doesn't matter how big the megachurches get, the little churches are ceasing to exist. And the others are starting to rotate themselves out. The church is not growing in the United States. It's shrinking. In response to this, it's important that the church take a stand and do whatever it can to prevent this from happening. They must refrain um, from um, truly imbibing and allowing conduits uh, into their sphere, our sphere of teaching on these things. We need to remain firm in our belief and not be swayed by the words of others. And there are so many other words being spoken. The battle of Christianity isn't lost. That Christ will have the victory in the end. The church needs to stand up and cry out for, for others to stay true to their beliefs and not go away. Many young people are often severely tempted to go away from Christ when they leave their parents' homes and they enter the world. They're confronted with strange theories and opinions that contradict the old past that they had been taught to believe. Free thought and free handling of the Bible have become so commonplace that it can actually become very difficult to keep track of truth. Most of the very intelligent people today deny the existence of God. And unsurprisingly, this can shock young people's faith. And they may be tempted to abandon it. And if anyone is tempted tonight to give in to their difficulties, I urge you to be strong and courageous and resist the temptation. And it's important to remember that these troubles and these temptations are are not new, but they're an age-old problem that has plagued and tested the church since the time of Eve. Hath God said... That's the question of our day in reference to the church and the truth. The world is saying, hath God said? On the other hand, this is also God's way of separating the wheat from the chaff. Which all believers must go through. The world is full of 
pitfalls and snares with its competitions and struggles and successes and failures, its, its disappointments and perplexities, its free thought, its, its superstition, which seems also to be rampant today. It's a fiery furnace. But it's a furnace we all have to pass through. The temptation to abandon your faith and turn away from Christ is something that everyone will eventually have to face. Just as many have done before. And knowing that you are only fighting an old and familiar enemy of the soul is half the battle. Recognizing this and standing strong against the temptation is the only way to ensure that you remain true to your faith. It's important not to be surprised and not to be shaken by the temptation to to leave the church. Even if many people you know are succumbing to that assault and many people are leaving the church. Neglecting their faith, living without God. That it shouldn't move you. Instead, you should remain steadfast and determined on your journey to eternity. You should set your face and your foot firmly in the old paths, the tried ways, the tested ways, and not be swayed by the actions of others. Will you also go away? Was the question the Lord had for His twelve. And it's a question for each of us tonight. Secondly, the response. Let's consider Peter's answer. Will you also go away? Lord, cries the warm-hearted and impulsive Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? And like many other others in the Bible, this question was equivalent to a it was the equivalent to a strong confession. There is none beside thee that we can go to. Peter says. And the words are are very similar to to David, the psalmist's own words who said, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. Peter had ample reason to uh, to, to ask this question. To whom shall we go? Lord, is there someone I'm missing? John the Baptist is already gone. Is there someone else? Because Peter and every other apostle lived in an era when, as 1 Corinthians says, the world by wisdom knew not God. The nations that excelled in things 
the nations that excelled around them, they excelled in, in secular things such as Egypt and Assyria and Greece and Rome. They were all steeped in spiritual darkness. There were no other answers out there. The most able philosophers of Greece and Rome were blind to truth. Even though every now and then they would come up with some incredible statements about truth, they always missed the truth. Even the the wisest of their thinkers uh, had to, to confess their need for light. They had no answers. If Peter had left Christ 2,000 years ago with the rest of the ex-disciples, where would he have found what he desired? Would he have found it in informal Phariseeism? Skeptical Sadduceeism? Worldly Herodianism? The the ascetic Essenes, the philosophical schools of Athens and Alexandria and Rome, all of these supposed fountains of knowledge were proven to be broken cisterns that couldn't hold water, and they satisfied no anxious mind. And true Christians may always boldly ask the same question Peter did when they're tempted to leave. Where else could I possibly go? When people say Christianity is outdated or Christianity is old colonialism or whatever monkier they want to place upon Christianity to disparage Christianity, we can challenge them to show us something better. Anything better. And they may present objections to revealed truth. They may take umbrage and argument with certain laws of God and certain ways that that things are written. But we may confidently defy them to show us a more excellent way. Than what the Bible teaches. If we turn our backs on Christ, where, oh, where will we find peace of conscience, strength of, of duty, power against temptation? Comfort in trouble, support in the hour of death, and and hope beyond the grave. No ism can offer that. The truth is nothing but an almighty, personal friend will meet the legitimate needs of man's soul. Philosophical theories and abstract ideas and, and vague speculations about the unseen and the, and the infinite and, and the inner light may satisfy some for a time. Still, the vast majority of mankind will never be content with a religion. With a religion that doesn't provide a person to whom they can look and trust. 
Where will we find one so perfectly suited to meet our needs as the Christ of the Bible? If we have any religion, we will never be content without a a person that we can look to and trust. And you know, this is interesting because it's one of the things that that gives the Roman Catholic Church the the Mariolatry of their religion. It gives Rome a very curious power because they can place that, uh, that, that emphasis on a person in Mary. Because there's an innate desire, obviously, within us to have a person. And that person, congregation, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not in an idea. It's not in an abstraction. It's in a person. Because it doesn't matter where you go. And I would say in... In my years of study and learning, which brings me right up to to date, I have looked in all other places that I can think of, and there isn't an answer. There isn't one aside from the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you also go away, Lord? To whom shall we go? Well, lastly, let's look at that reply. Consider his dignified declaration of our text. Thou hast the words of eternal life. I don't think that the Apostle Peter here fully grasped what he was saying when he spoke this truth. It would be inconsistent with all we read of his knowledge before the Lord's resurrection that he knew what he was saying here. It may well be doubted whether he meant more than this. That thou art the true Messiah. Thou art the promised prophet, like unto Moses. Of whom it was written, I will put my words in his mouth, that's the Messiah, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. Deuteronomy 18.18. Very famous passage to a Hebrew. Peter would have known that passage. Although Peter never knew the wealth of the meaning of that passage until after the resurrection. But of one thing we may be sure. The expression eternal life was something that Peter had caught on to. The expression eternal life, for thou alone hast the words of eternal life, or the words of life. Eternal life, eternal life that must have rung like a bell in the ears of all of the twelve while Jesus was with them all of those years. In fact, I would suspect that there were very few days when they didn't hear eternal life fall from his lips and they caught on to that phrase if they fully didn't understand it and Peter's using it here. In the brief record of our Lord's teaching, uh, in the four Gospels, you have that phrase, eternal life, 25 times, eternal life. John's Gospel alone, it occurs 17 times. And in the 
sixth chapter that we're in, we read it five times. Eternal life. And no doubt it was ringing in Peter's ears when he spoke. And though Peter didn't fully understand what he said that day, there came a day when his understanding was was opened after the Lord's resurrection and he saw heights and depths to the words eternal life that he never saw before the cross. And we today do not need to guess what the Lord meant by those words. Christ's words of eternal life were words about the nature of that life which he came into into the world to proclaim a life begun in the soul by faith while we live and perfected in glory when we die. They were words about the way in which the eternal life, uh, this eternal life is provided for in sinful man, even the way of his atoning death as our substitute on the cross. Eternal life. They were the words about the terms on which this eternal life was made our own. If we, if we feel our need of it, even the terms of simple faith. As Hugh Latimer said, it is but believe and have, he said. Believe and have. The words were about the the training and discipline on the way to eternal life, even the renewing and sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit. Eternal life. They were words about the comforts and the encouragements that that are along the way, laid up for all who believe to life everlasting, even Christ as their daily help, as their daily portion, as their as their sympathetic high priest, as the one who has their watchful care. Eternal life. And all of this and and much more that I can't get into is contained in that little phrase, eternal life. And no wonder that our Lord says in a certain place, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He is speaking about that eternal life that begins here now and enters eternity forever. You know, I thought for a moment, or for more than a moment actually, of what vast numbers of men and women in the last 2,000 years have found these words, eternal life, not merely words, but solid realities. They have been persuaded of them. They embraced them and they found these words, eternal life, food and drink, for their souls when they needed most. 
It was faith in Christ's words of eternal life that made Peter and John stand up boldly before the Jewish council and confess their master without fear, without uh, fear of consequences. There is none other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It was faith in Christ's words of eternal life that made Paul come come out of his Phariseeism and spend his life preaching the gospel. And to say on the brink of the grave, I know whom I have believed and that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Faith in Christ's words of eternal life made old Bishop Hooper go boldly to the stake to be burned after he said, life is sweet and death is bitter, but eternal life is more sweet and eternal death more bitter. Faith in Christ's words of eternal life made Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer endure the fiery death on Broad Street, Oxford, when they were given to the flames because they would not deny the principles of their faith. Faith in Christ's words of eternal life made Anne Askew, an English poet and, and Tudor Protestant, made her cling to Christ and, and undergo tremendous torture and was burned at the stake for not renouncing her Protestant faith. And what a fearful contrast to those who turn their backs on Christ and seek other masters. What fruits can the advocates of I was going to say non-Christian theories, but that's What fruits can advocates of non-Christ give? Ideas, the principles to point with, with all of their cleverness, nothing. What holy, loving, peaceful quietness of spirit have they ever enjoyed? Not a moment. What victories have they won over darkness and superstition and sin? No victories. What seas have those other systems crossed with a Savior in the boat? You can ask all of this, but you'll get no answer. No wonder our Lord said of false prophets, by their fruits ye shall know them. Because it's a fruitless world. Only those who can say with Peter, thou hast the words of eternal life, can say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? As we close, I want you all to ask yourself whether you are going away from Christ like the disciples or clinging boldly to Christ like the twelve.
Young people, you live in a perilous day. There was a time when sin was never respectable, never bragged about, never held forth publicly for glory. That time has long passed. Where good is called evil and evil is called good. In the starkest terms possible. And yet even now, Christ continues to knock at the door of your heart. Entreating you to consider your ways and heed what you do. Will ye also go away? Do the unthinkable tonight and establish a tribunal in your heart of hearts to examine yourself. Refuse the urge that forbids you to scrutinize your inner self. Because count on it, the time will come when you will need a great advocate in heaven. And you may live comfortably without him. But without Him, you will never die comfortably. Tonight you may tell me you have no intention on forsaking Christ, though you are not at present all you ought to be. But there are some things you say that are still jumbled messes in my mind. There are there are some things about all of this that, uh, that you can't decide on and you're, and you're waiting for more light. Or you're striving hard for some specific goal and you don't have the time just now and, and you hope like Felix in the book of Acts for a more convenient season than right now. But oh, listen to me, waiting and lingering soul. What is neglecting of Christ's word? And what is neglecting Christ's sacraments this day? But going away from him. You didn't need to stand up and turn your back on this table and walk out the door when the Lord's Supper was served to go away. You can go away right in your pew. You can go away without going anywhere. Awaken to see that you are on a very severe downward slope and 
gradually you are picking up steam and you are going faster and faster and farther and farther. And you're drifting. You know it. You're drifting. And you're drifting more and more and further and further away from God. Stop it. Awaken. Drift no more. Because time is short. And truth is a premium in supply. But next to having no religion... And maybe this is the most severe of all. Beware of a religion without Christ at the center. There are several Christless options out there right now. Where Christ does not hold his rightful place. And let's never try to satisfy ourselves with a a little cheap formal Christianity taken up carelessly on Sundays and dropped on Mondays. Because that kind of Christianity will neither give us peace in life or hope in death or the power to resist temptation or to comfort in our troubled hours. Christ alone has the words of eternal life. And His words must be received. And they must be believed and embraced before they are ever food for your soul. And a Christianity without a living felt communion with Him, without a grasp of the benefits of His blood and His intercession, a Christianity without Christ's sacrifice and Christ's priesthood is a powerless, weary, a weary, dead thing. There are many ways to go away without going anywhere. Where are you? Where are you? Going to him or away from him? And finally, communicants. Let's hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. If we have reason to hope that we are Christ's true disciples, let others laugh. Let others try to to turn us away as as much as they please. Let us calmly and, and humbly say to ourselves at times such as this, after all, to whom shall we go but Christ? Because we feel that within we have the words of eternal life. We see that thousands find food and drink for their souls in Him. Where He goes then, I will go. And where He lodges, I will lodge. 
And in a dying world, we can do nothing better. That we will cling to Christ and we will cling to his words because they've never failed anyone who's ever trusted in them. And we believe they will not fail for us. Amen.